Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, with us today from London is the former global head of media at Vodafone, Paul Evans. Now, Paul was a co-architect of the telco's grand plan to in-house its £500 million global media budget, or at least a digital part of it, a few years back. Paul has also been on agency side. He's worked as the global lead for Havas Media out of Dubai on Emirates. And he's worked on brand side with Kimberly Clark, Nestle, ABN Bev and Xbox. Paul also was on the early working group uh, that produced the recent digital advertising investigation from ISBAR in the UK and PwC. So welcome, Paul Evans. Let's start with probably one of the biggest, at least pre-COVID topics across marketing, media and agencies and and consultants too, really globally, is this whole thing around in-housing. You did something quite significant back in probably 2018, I think, but just run us through why you and your peers at Vodafone decided it would be better, cheaper, more efficient, more effective even, to take this digital media activity in-house and off agencies. Paul McIntyre, that was one hell of an introduction. Thank you ever so much. It's good to say hi. We should give the guys a little bit of background in as much as um, I've been listening to you and your podcast for uh, like over a year now, since ironically since leaving Vodafone when I when I left there in 2019. And you're still listening, Paul. That's good. That's a good sign. Uh, mate, you should be kind of proud of yourself. You've you've uh, you've reached the, the sunny shores of the UK and um, and have made an impact. It's um, you, you've got a great show with great content, and you you really get to the heart of a lot of issues. And you know, to this point on on kind of in housing, we'll take that as a wrap it from from Paul Evans in London about MI3. Thank you. And yes, in housing. Yeah, because. In-housing kind of forms quite an integral part of my time at Vodafone. But, um, but you know, when I joined, uh, and so I, I was at Vodafone for three and a half years, preceded by time abroad in China and Dubai agency side. And, and as you went through these different roles in um, different, um, different brands and different industries, typically kind of media leadership roles. And when I landed at Vodafone, I didn't actually set out to drive towards an in-housing you know solution for the business and it's kind of where i'm going with this is it's quite important for brands and agencies and, and the kind of the industry ecosystem to understand why brands choose to in-house and i think there's a guy called simon Sinek who talks about why and the importance of you know understanding why in 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 um in bringing people along with you in change management but also in doing things for the right reasons and um, in-housing was actually kind of towards the end of a, of a journey for Vodafone. So uh, on, joining, on joining the business um, three and a half years kind of prior, um, we set out a number of imperatives that, or pillars that we wanted to achieve, operating principles, we called them. And this was about, um, I guess, um, a journey of maturity for, for the media function there. And, um, and we set out to achieve, I guess, three guiding um, principles in the way that we would operate, the way that we would um, work with the ecosystem, um, the way we would contract with, with the ecosystem, 
agencies, ad tech uh, businesses and so on like that. And those were focused on transparency, independence and, uh, and ownership. So at a very high level, I think we, can, we all know what they mean. Um, and they can become quite rich and granular in their own right. But through the lens of those principles, we were developing um, stronger agency services relationships. We were taking ownership of our media planning and innovation agenda. We took um, full ownership um, of our um, ad tech stack. You know, all of those things proceeded um, in housing. And I, and, and I genuinely believe that that's a linear process, as in like, I think to even consider in housing, you need to know your function incredibly well, um, have really kind of got into it root and branch, have, um, have kind of, you know, worked through systematically um, those, those kind of, you know, those areas of capability that I've just referred to, and, and only then know that in housing can give you some things, but can't do everything. Um, it can give you great transparency. Um, it can give you control, which is different to ownership. So I think a really important distinction as as people look at in housing and and that that why is you know do you want control? Because you can have ownership without in housing. So you can have ownership over your over your media function without having to go down an in-house uh, route. Control is just a very different dimension of that and getting hands on keyboards um, is, is a very different experience. And I think probably lastly, the other point on why is, is, is around commitment. So um, in-housing kind of, I get, <laughs> there's that expression about things being for Christmas. Uh, like a little puppy for Christmas. Um, In-housing is not for Christmas. In-housing is like a five-year commitment minimum um, for any business because of the, the level of change and complexity that you're bringing into your business um, because of the implications on culture and people uh, and so on like that. Um, and so I think really, really important in that, in that initial um, kind of assessment that why in-house um, is to kind of address that. So just interestingly though, Paul, the motivation for Vodafone to even start with those three pillars, was it, how much was it to do with the, the concern at the time, sort of 16, 17, about uh, the murky digital supply chain? We've seen a lot of the debate out, obviously from Mark Pritchett at P&G and the, and the ANA in the US. Was it triggered by those sorts of transparency and control concerns or efficacy and effectiveness? What was the drivers in the lead up to develop this? Yeah, so I mean, thinking back to those operating principles of transparency, ownership, and independence, right? So those those guiding north stars for us. I mean, in housing meets and and is a is a positive reaction to those three pillars. So in housing was a, a right thing. It was right on our journey. Um, I think you know one of the triggers for actually in-housing was um, the digital transformation that the business was going through at the time um, anyway on a broader basis and um, and it you know with with business case support um, to um, to to set out the both the long and, and short-term benefits and and also the the long and short-term uh, challenges and tasks that we'd need to address to actually bring it in-house these functional capabilities in-house. It was search, social, and programmatic that um, we were on a journey to, um, to take control of. Um, it, 
it was you know it was it was seen as the right thing to do and and looking back i think um and and you know the experience of the business um since i've left and has been kind of very you know widely reported has been been very positive in those in that regard and in those results so to answer your question kind of directly yes and no it's not it's never going to be the solution to do that so you can have transparency you can have ownership um you know in addressing as you call it the murky world of um of you know of the supply chain you can do that you can take those steps to increase visibility um, and have ownership over your operations without doing in-housing. In-housing has to be that right response for, for each individual business. So was the expectations in the lead up to this both cost out and efficiency gains or was it more about trying to reduce cost? What was the expectations? This was always seen as both a long and a short-term um, initiative for the business. And when you're kind of applying yeah, business case calculations um, to that, um, you know, you're, you're looking at short-term return. And those effectiveness and efficiency gains um, are there and are apparent and, and were realised for, for our business, um, you know, across our local markets, absolutely. The order of magnitude on that, Paul, when you say the gains and both efficiency and effectiveness, are we talking 10 to 25? up to 10, 1,000 <laughs> percent? Yeah, and, and they vary, right? Um, from, um, uh, you know, campaign to campaign, because that's where you're looking for that ROI in, in performance. Um, and, you know, reported um, um, relatively publicly about um, kind of 10 to 15 percent improvements in, um, in, in kind of campaign operation and effectiveness, which is not insignificant. No, it's not. And it's interesting that you do get some counter conversation on this, though, that says one, uh, brands that are looking to in-house just for cost out um, uh, is, is, is the wrong reason to do it only. But also that you do those that have done it. And, and in this market, we have some of the bigger players doing it or a hybrid model. But they uh, some of the, so the, the, so the discoveries a year or two on is that they've, they find they've got the efficiencies in the first year, possibly the second, and then it runs dry. Yeah, and this is why people need to look at this as a as a as a longer term initiative because yeah, it's very easy to kind of show you a year one business case and um, and realise those gains. Um, the real so going back to the point about kind of long versus short term and, and and why I felt this was a great solution for Vodafone and indeed it's you know for the right businesses it's the right thing to do is those longer term benefits. It's it's the upskilling of the business. It's the the you know the understanding of how the ecosystem works with hands-on keyboards, it's capability building, it's talent in-house, it's a different set of relationships that you now have um, with your ad tech partners and your agency as well, right? And really important to mention within all of this, in-housing isn't about you know separation from your agency, and um, and one of the uh, Vodafone you know um, public publicly kind of um, stated Vodafone um, benefits has been um, that it's brought their agency um, much closer to them, ironically. So it's kind of paradoxical. But how so on that, Paul? How so on that? How, why, what is the, what is the, the, the brand get closer to the agency when it takes business away from it? Okay, so this paradox of seeking independence but needing partners to realise that independence is really key to get your head around, right? So as, as, and in-housing is, is a great example of this. So as you step out on that journey as a, as a brand, as a business, 
you definitively need partners to make it happen. And, and it, you know, historically, that partnership used to be in the media function sense, um, brand and media agency. And now it's more fully fleshed and rounded out. And, you know, we were working with um, an ad verification partner, a DSP partner, and, and DMP partner, and so on like that, right? So we had this set of strategic partners to help us develop our capabilities, to solve problems as we went, to become more sophisticated in our understanding of how things work. So that's where partnership comes into play. That's how you become close with your agency. Your agency is part of that, right? I, I think one of the really, really interesting things about, and we'll get onto the kind of, um, you know, the PwC transparency report, is the emphasis on people and talent within technology. Adobe, interestingly, have just kind of put out an announcement that they, you know, they're ceasing their managed service um, solution, as an example. And I think it's it's critical that service within technology businesses is is really kind of elevated because that that is as important as the tech itself, if not more important. That the value and quality of people um, in your relationship, which is what you get from um, from brilliant agencies, is brilliant people. Um, that makes a hell of a difference, even with where you've got in-house functions. You always need that um, external perspective. But that sophistication that you're talking about uh, inside a brand, uh, inside a company and a, and a marketing team, that sophistication also equals uh, more complexity internally for the company as well. So is in-housing, do you think, is it right for any or most brands or is it really for those with, with big scale and a Vodafone with a 500 billion, I don't know, it's probably 800 million Australian global media budget um is it scale that that where this where this can make some gains no, in housing that is no i'm uh you know i've never executed in housing in a smaller business right so i'm not speaking from experience but hypothetically um in housing can be for any business and i think there's an opportunity to simplify as well so along with the choice of partners there was a, a kind of you know an emphasis on way of working and operational processes that needed to come with in-housing as well as well as you know the choice of talent that you have in-house and the way that you develop that team and so on and i think you can bring all that together and simplify the way you work and and you can absolutely make it work whether you're a large business in fact it's probably harder in a large business than in a smaller business where you could for example you could in-house paid search it's the it's the simplest of of all of the paid media functions to bring in-house with many do don't they already yeah a single platform you know that's in housing it, and we're kind of touching on kind of hybrids um you know the conversation about hybrid here as well because when most people kind of start to talk about in-housing in a, in a very binary way. You're kind of in or out. Um, and actually, you've got, you've got a, a degree. In-housing is like a graphic equaliser almost. There's lots of choices about functionally what you bring in-house and by implication what you leave out-house, what you um, strategically say there's more value here. Um, it's sitting with the agency. So in that scenario, yeah, a, a smaller brand, for example, could could say um, paid search is something that I can legitimately um, bring in house and operate um, efficiently, efficiently, and and I can develop processes around that to make it happen. Um, and I can ensure that that integrates back into other capabilities that are, are related. Let's say search, um, so social and programmatic, and those can remain with my agency, and that's 
completely legitimate. So I want to just uh, clear something up with you too, Paul, because there have been mixed reports. This is back to Vodafone before we move on from in-housing, but back to Vodafone and the and the results uh, that Vodafone has hit since taking uh, media in-house, at least digital media. Um, there's been some debate about whether the mandate changed uh, and whether it was working effectively for Vodafone. There's been some some commentary made that Vodafone ended up only doing social and search, to your point, uh, in-house. The rest of the digital buy uh, stayed with the agency and then it came back and bounced back and pulled more in. What's really happening there? What, what, what are your thoughts and observations on the ebb and flow that at least the commentators have been talking about? <laughs> um, I mean, clearly I can only... Um comment um kind of up to when i you know when i left the business in um in q1 2019 um but kind of going back to some of the points i've made about you know if i was to draw out lessons from vodafone's experiences you know it's a it's a long-term commitment um it and you know and we'd always plan to bring in um social and programmatic um uh in-house but that was a phased um uh, rollout or a phased kind of in-housing process um, because we were managing the transition carefully. We didn't want to kind of um, throw everything up in the air at once. Um, so, so the reality, from my perspective, um, uh, was that we were, you know, we were we were taking steps and considered steps to bring uh, everything in. So, no U-turn in any capacity. Um, what that article kind of, and I, I remember the article um, specifically, kind of saying that. Um, you know that we were kind of. This is the Digi Day one you're talking about, Paul. That's correct. You know, and um, you know that that wasn't correct, and um, you know there there was no U-turn uh, at Vodafone. It was a, a full commitment to the business for all the right reasons. But you know, the article points to what is a reality for announcing. It's 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 hard. It's not easy, and it, and it goes back to kind of you know. Um, for businesses kind of really asking hard questions as to why they want to do this, is, you know, and, and evaluating whether there's readiness within the business and saying, is there value in us doing this strategically um, for the short term and for the longer term as well? So, you know, in, in some ways it was, it was, you know, the article was kind of right because it's, it's with the right intent in, in saying it's not an easy thing to do. But for Vodafone, um, we were very much um, on course and, and quite rigorous in the way that we were um, deploying the, the process. Bloody journos, I tell you. You've got you to give them a wide berth. So listen, your, your big uh, prediction uh, for the future of in-housing, do you see it then rolling on and, and, and expanding or was there, is there a natural peak to it? Oh, the the old pendulum, which um, was in, uh, inevitably kind of um, talked about in the press at the time as well. Um, I think there's been a sea change in in brands over, let's say, I, I mean, there was a kind of, you know, you can look at kind of marks in the sand um, for brands. And 2014 was when the first WFA um, report came out on um, on transparency. And I, I kind of felt back then that this really ignited a change and a longer term change in the way brands were were looking at their media and 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 other marketing capabilities in terms of um, uh, ownership, as you know, is a word that I keep using a lot um, in this conversation today, um, harking back to those kind of operational pillars, um, you know, really, really important. So I, I think I think the, the brands that have taken the decision to in-house for the right reasons, with that longer-term commitment in mind, recognising the challenges that um, in-housing presents, 
and having the correct kind of support system, partnerships in place, operating processes in place, and you know, looking at this in-house team as a as a discrete function, maybe even with a discrete culture and setup. Um, if they're if they're recognizing all of those um, dimensions like a recipe, um, then they're set up for for you know for for gain and value in the longer term. And, and why would they use it? And there's going to be incredible value for those businesses going forward. So it it, it kind of depends on on how businesses have, have approached it. Some people will kind of inevitably have kind of gone into it and, and then kind of want to U-turn um, because it's not right. I've got to ask, though, when you started bringing, uh, well, when Vodafone started bringing its media in-house, did the schedule change? Did what you buy change, the channels you used, the channel mix? When you looked at it through your own internal naked eyes, did you go, this is where we need to shift to? Was there any significant change in the channel mix? No, uh, not not particularly, no. Um, the bulk of, um, and, and being honest, the bulk of um, activation of um, of in-housing kind of happened as I was uh, leaving. So he kind of not really in a position to comment, but um, but I, I don't believe so, no. We've talked uh, quite a bit about the transparency bit. Um, the digital supply chain and transparency, uh, give us an update from the UK. We saw, obviously, in the, in the last couple of weeks, uh, ISBAR, the peak advertiser body in the UK, and PwC come out with, with that report um, that sort of looked at, again, uh, the, the black spots in the digital supply chain. We had Mark Pritchard, Pritchard from PNG Watt three, four years ago call out the murky supply chain. Have we got anywhere in the last three to four or five years? Has the UK at least made any progress? because it's mixed signals here, I would have to argue. Yeah, wow. Uh, this is such a big topic, isn't it? So I was, as you mentioned kind of earlier on, I was, um, I was present um, in the original um, scoping sessions and working group at, at ISBAR, which is the, the UK industry body that represents advertisers, a brilliant organisation that I'd kind of spent um, about 15 years working with. But then obviously I, I'd kind of um, uh, left um, and then... Um, so I was kind of, you know, one of the interesting things is I was quite surprised at how how long it took to to come through to fruition. And there's, you know, there's inevitably a story within that in itself um, that this was an incredibly difficult project for um, for PwC and Isbar to realise. And we'll, we'll we'll kind of go into some of that in a minute. I think it's probably for your listeners maybe just worth kind of recapping on some of the headlines that it found that um, around 50% of ad spend actually reached the the publisher. So thinking about putting a dollar in the top and what comes out the bottom for the publisher, 50 cents. Getting to the the target market even perhaps is probably another way to do it. Just not the publisher, but the publisher getting to the audience that was intended for. Well, absolutely, yes. There's there's there's, uh, there's lots of things going on in this, and um, and then one of the other things that caught the eye was um, this uh, 15% of overall spend. So preceding that money re- reaching the um, the publisher, um, about 15% of that spend um, being unknown and unclassified. Um, and then the third point was um, uh, so of the 250 million impressions that were served, um, and kind of you know within this kind of study there was about 15 advertisers. Um, only 12% could be matched end to end. So you know you've got some you know what what feels kind of crazy headlines there, right? That, that are, are kind of unimaginable in a in a in a in a setup that is in a in an ecosystem that is consuming such 
a significant proportion of advertiser investment right now. Um, you know, would we accept this in financial markets, as an example, as a parallel? No, no we, sh- we shouldn't do, right? So you, you, you kind of think about all those headlines and, and, and you think, wow, this is, this is quite ridiculous. Uh, it reminded me of the John Wanamaker quote about half my advertising work, so I just don't know which half. Uh, ironically, it's kind of, you know, half stated to reach the publisher. How ironic is that, though, Paul, that um, digital was supposed to fix that? Well, exactly. You know, we've got to ask some questions, some really hard questions coming out of this, right? Have things changed? You know, it's 10 years since the birth of programmatic, 25 years since online advertising, um, you know, was kind of came into fruition. Have things improved for marketers? Are we seeing more value within the market space, uh, within the marketplace? Uh, is, is it evidential value? Can it be measured? And um, and are we, you know, is, is there transparency that's enabling that measurement? Um, and you've got to kind of say no. You know, we, we, we're still not there yet. And I mentioned that WFA report going back to 2014. There was a similar waterfall supply chain waterfall study that was. Um, uh, delivered then. So that's kind of six years preceding this study and, and kind of not much had changed then on that basis. So, um, you know, I, I look at some of the, I look at where do we go on this, I guess, as an industry. Um, clearly things need to change. Clearly we need to take them. But yet, Paul, yet the money, yet you say all that and you're right, but yet the money keeps pouring in. Um, <laughs> so is the, is the market blind? Is it, is it ignoring because uh, there are business interests that are aligned to that? Why, are we, why is it still happening without the, without the big calls for really cleaning, clearing things up, if not cleaning? Well, uh, because I guess, the surface level metrics which drive um, digital marketing and, and kind of digital media appear to deliver short-term transparency, right? So they appear to say to a CMO, my, my investment is um, realizing X impressions or, or Y click-through or <laughs> whatever comes after why, uh, be, um, be acquisition target, right? I've downloaded, um, I've downloaded um, a, a thousand apps. Those proxy metrics give false, uh, I think, a full sense of security. And, you know, uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole kind of thing here we can talk about, about short-term metrics and what that's done for, for marketing. But I, I think the, the demand for accountability of marketing is real, and it's one of the huge Achilles heels for marketing overall. Digital offers, on a surface level anyway, a degree of what you can, in, in a proxy way, offer up as effectiveness. You can look at that, and, and, and I think it, it, it says, you know, and with performance marketing in mind, it, it kind of says things are working, things are, are realizing um, an outcome. But then you do this kind of study and, and it's adrenaline shot in the arm to say, actually, we need to really look a lot harder at this. We need better mechanisms in place that, that reveal the truth. And because this is a two-year study, right, that it's taken this long with all the contractual barriers, um, data standardization and interoperability barriers that exist then that's kind of been talked about in the press and and by commentators that you know these are the things that are stopping stopping this degree of everyday transparency happening with this this degree of opacity is only being revealed through a 
for a, you know a two-year study. That's that's crazy, and and it's one of the reasons why things can carry on on a day-to-day basis is because you know. You, it's hard to draw these kind of conclusions on an on an everyday basis. Well, to your point, though, you, you, you do say this wouldn't be acceptable in the financial markets and the governance issues around it, the risk factor with the risk teams, it wouldn't get passed in, in, in a financial market. But w- so... so it does in this. It does in this sector, in the media sector, and marketing. But what are the alternatives then? If these proxy metrics you say in the short term tend to show value or efficacy, what's an alternative? Uh, give us some of your original thinking there, Paul Evans. Uh, thanks, Paul McIntyre. Um, you, you've got to say this industry is is right for regulation because like, I'd love to think. So I'm, I've kind of expressed, you know, clearly I'm a principled guy, right? And, and you know, I believe in the industry. I'm a champion of the industry. Genuinely, I believe I'm a passionate marketer and I believe that this industry can deliver good for marketing, for advertisers, for brands and for audiences and publishers. The end to end of the supply chain, right? Everything in the middle is a transfer of value from advertiser to um, end recipient, um, the publisher and audience. And I, I believe there's inherent good there. Um, and there's but. lots that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so th- let's think about the steps that we can take. So they, we, I think there needs to be a formalization and a standardization of data as any, so that we are working to common taxonomy and common definitions of, of data that's exchanged through the supply chain. We need to have a better code of contact even, or a culture of collaboration between demand side and supply side. So one of the interesting things that was called out here um, in the report was that the, the SSPs were where things were falling down, perhaps, in terms of transparency, because, you know, let's say contracts were, that were set up for the advertiser to realise transparency through their agency might then have a problem being enacted through the DSP, let alone then again through the SSP. So you've got contractual limitations and so on like that. But all of that is is about goodwill and and the industry coming together, which is hard, right? And and you yeah. Well, I was going to say, Paul, you said that the, the the industry is right yeah, for so regulation. It takes you to that. Can the industry do it voluntarily? Can it do it vol- voluntarily, or does it? Uh, is it essentially, um, particularly with marketers and their ability to be in the weeds on the stuff and understand it, they don't have the bandwidth for for it. Can it? If the understanding on the buy side or the marketer side, the brand side isn't there. Can we be expecting the industry to, to, to behave well and voluntarily? No, probably not. So, you know, where the incentives are misaligned through the supply chain, so ultimately there's, there's money to be made um, um, and, and some of it for not the right reasons, um, you know, you, you've probably got to look towards some degree of, of regulation. You know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I wouldn't claim to be proficient in this area, but from a principal point of view, it, it, it might possibly be the only way that the that the industry, you know, that we can raise the floor and the ceiling of the industry at the same time and that we all move forward together. Um, it, it feels as though it's the right thing with the scale of investment and uh, that's, that's involved within this. You know, it is similar to financial market, markets. Um, the mechanisms are the same. The... You know, the way the ecosystem was set up was designed to mirror and mimic, um, you know, the operating conditions of financial markets, yet we just don't have the same, the same degree of operating efficacy 
that that can that can can realise um, the, the the best outcomes and 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 fair and profitable outcomes for for everybody. I think. So um, yes, I think it's probably the, the short answer. Do you do you get the sense uh, in the UK that uh, the digital supply chain and the and the different actors and operatives inside that chain are taking this seriously? I think it was the Information Commissioner in the UK or the Office of the Information Commissioner or something like that who he he, he was yeah the ICO yeah that's it. They were conducting an investigation and expressed some frustration with the uh, how lightly they were being taken by by the digital sector. Um, is that change that was probably I saw that maybe six eight months ago. Is, it a, is that is that a fair frustration from a, from a, a regulator? Um, possibly so. Again, my kind of you know my limits of being able to draw definitive kind of observations or conclusions on this one. But I'd say like the ecosystem has been there was no single architect. Right, I was the single kind of single architect of Vodafone's in housing. Let's say there was no single architect um, of um, the ad tech ecosystem. Right, it's been built over time, and there's numerous layers that prevent interoperability and to, you know prevent transparency. There's a great guy um, called Danny Spears. He's the um, he's the COO, I think, of um, the Ozone. Um, um, business in the UK, which is a is a is a is a business that represents a, a number of kind of leading publishers, um, and is kind of you know developing a, a, a platform for brands to access. And he talks about opacity by design, and so you know there you're getting into almost deliberate um, acts to prevent transparency or at least to well obvi- obfuscate <laughs> yeah, well yeah that's the word i'd love to be able to say but can't um i used to not be able to say econometrics but i can say that <laughs> I, I can't say that one um and um and you know and, and i think it, it's a it's a really valid point by danny right which which kind of says you know this confusion and complexity that exists is you know in some ways almost deliberate and and just baked into the ecosystem so you know, although I can't say definitively, uh, that frustration that the ICO has kind of, you know, professed um, publicly is, is probably legitimate, right? You know, and, and that's the ICO, right? So and then you look at that from a brand perspective and, and putting in the effort and resource and time to have to navigate that. It's, it's, it's crazy that it's set up this way. One of the kind of drawing a little bit of a conclusion under the, the PwC ISBAR report in, in terms of actions as well is, you know, that, that assessment was done um, largely on OpenX, I think, uh, open exchange buying. You know, you, you've got to think, why, why don't brands do more IO again? Or, or at least if, if wanting to transact programmatically and thinking of that in the sense of automation with efficiency and automation um, being of value, do it through programmatic guaranteed or, or private marketplace. So you're, dealing, you know, you're, you're curating your own known premium marketplace of trusted um, supply sources and, you know, and start there and build out from there. 
Ozone is probably a great example of a place to start. Mm. Well, Paul Evans, uh, Google won't like you saying private marketplaces when it owns the biggest open exchange in the world, but we could go there, but that's another <laughs> 300 years, oh, so let's not. Thank you. Hey, um, look, it's... it's um, yes, I saved your bacon there, I suspect. Um, the, the, the next part before we let you go, because we are running out of time, I knew we would, um, the marketing function. You've been at the top in global corporations. Uh, is the marketing function, in your view, view, losing or gaining credibility with the C-suite and boards? As I say, I'm a passionate marketer. I would love marketing to, you know, be at the be at the C-suite table where it belongs. I'm a big believer that marketing is about business strategy. It's not about communications. And I think, I think marketing has has lost a lot of that holistic commercial um, grounding in businesses. It's become, uh, you know, just about one of the four pieces as Mark Ritson talks about a lot. And so, you know, it's it's lost a lot of credibility on that basis, I think, and it's kind of mispositioned, ironically, it's 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 mismarketed itself within, you know, within the business. And it needs to be at a C-suite level, it needs to be more commercial, it needs to be considered as, you know, core business strategy, I think. And But to that end, one of the things, um, you know, we've touched on this in our conversation today, one of the Achilles heels for marketing is accountability. So the CFO saying, you know, what what does that investment realize for this business? And And I'm not saying that's an easy answer. Inherent within marketing is long and short-term um, uh, efficacy benefits and um, and the art and science of marketing kind of all coming together. It's, it's not easy for any CMO to demonstrate accountability, but that there lies the kind of problem and that lies the challenge and the opportunity for marketing going forward. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, you, you, there's studies that have shown that um, for the C-suite, it's the, it's the least trusted um, or, or least understood capability sitting at the top table. And, you know, that can't be a great place for marketing, right? You know, it should be, it should be up there at the, at the heart of the business. And it's probably, you know, within COVID, the decisions to cut marketing investment have been well discussed, right, publicly. Uh, you know, and, and the, the benefits of, um, of, of marketing, not necessarily kind of, you know, paid media, but, but marketing through recessionary environments, uh, are, are well are well covered and well known, and if but if the CFO doesn't understand that link between efficacy um, in investment and um, and return for the business, you know his decision or, or their decision um, on um, on you know on on investment and uh, for their for their business is going to be made so much harder and and or, or to that to the inverse it's so much easier to cut spend when you just don't know what you're going to get back for it. To wrap up, I know that you sort of you're in advisory roles in the UK in and around tech and ad tech and so forth. Uh, one of the other interesting things you're on the advisory board of an Australian startup actually called Agile, um, which is going global and uh, is in in the in the TV sector and connected to. Well, digital and linear television. So just from a, an ex, a media, a corporate media perspective at a big company, what's the outlook for you on the future of television? It has been the big golden goose for so long. What's the uh, prognosis from you? Just by the way, the Australian market and, and startups and the innovation culture that exists over in Australia is absolutely amazing. I, you know, I've been lucky enough to be kind of exposed to a, a number of different businesses over there. And Agile is a, a brilliant example of one that um, is there to 
kind of unify the ecosystem. And, and it, it, when I talk about kind of television, the television ecosystem and the, the old and new of television kind of coming together. Um, and, and there lies the story, really, for television going forward, because I think much of the emphasis within TV right now, the the shiny bits that people are kind of, you know, being drawn to are in addressable, are in CTV, uh, AVOD, SVOD, BVOD, and other acronyms you kind of want to throw at the marketplace. Yes, we should we should, we should, should explain to our listeners um, CTV, connected TV, SVOD, streaming video on demand, uh, AVOD, advertising video on demand. What was the other one you said, Paul? BVOD, broadcaster, video on demand. Video on demand, yes. Okay, we've cleared those acronym, acronyms up. Very good, nice. Love, love, love and acronyms in the ad tech world, and kind of understandably because there's there's inherent benefits in there, right? Of targeting and identity and kind of wastage minimization that can work for certain objectives. However, what I strongly believe and hope for the television industry is that it doesn't sleepwalk into the programmatic activation or the addressability and the activation of addressability within television and ignore what television has done and has been proven to do at the highest level. It's the most effective medium in building brands and businesses and delivering ROI over the short and long term. And and that's in recognizing the way that um, it, it is consumed and the way that uh, television can engage with um, with audiences through brilliant contact. So, you know, we we don't want to throw everything out at the same time. And so, I I think that you know, if there's one headline here, it's about linear or live TV, catch up TV, in you know, on the one side, with these various different forms of uh, addressability. Um, they they need to grow together. They need to come together. They need to be recognised holistically and measured holistically, which is one of the areas where Agile can um, deliver benefit um, to the industry. And and with that, I think we can move forward collectively as an industry. And I think what you know, there's another point about um, television not being the most collaborative. I think in Australia, actually, there's probably great signs of collaboration amongst broadcasters, agencies, and um, and uh, ad tech businesses. And that's where television will win in the future if it behaves you know in the best interest of advertisers if it kind of grows with maturity and it kind of and it and it brings all parts of the television ecosystem together it sounds like uh, you and i think some of your colleagues uh, on that advisory board at agile veterans like uh, anthony fitzgerald and i think professor karen nelson fields on there as well i think yeah, it's all it's all it's all very similar uh, arguments here and i and i and i think uh, do you do you really like in the UK, for instance, or your exposure in in other markets? Do you think the market will accept that, or will they go with the shiny stuff and think that addressability, targeting, uh, more granular stuff will end up taking uh, b- being the romantic partner? <laughs> and we've talked about you know the transparency issues and the supply chain kind of you know um, um, clouding and adding complexity to all of that. So you know. I hope with that degree of awareness as marketers, we 
we look to make the right decisions on in, on investing and we hold the industry to account in that way. And so if we do go down a path of um, driving towards um, addressable television, we, we hold those stakeholders to account to deliver transparency at the same time, to, to deliver um, unified measurement at the same time. And so, and, and I hope as marketers as well, you know, television has been the backbone of, of many a media plan over time and that shouldn't change, right? So, um, you know, television works, still works, will work in the future, undoubtedly. Um, we need to, as, as marketers, you know, we can be guardians of this and, and I think we can, we can help drive the industry to a better place, uh, undoubtedly, with the right kind of principles in place, um, uh, with the right objectives for, for brands and audiences. And, um, and and asking the right questions of the of the ecosystem, including the broadcasters, uh, as you know, agencies and so on. Paul Evans, I promise you this would be short. I lied. I think we might have to loop around for another, as I say, uh, on the good ones. So we might leave it there, but great conversation. Thanks for the perspectives. And uh, we will, I suspect, see you in Australia sometime when you can travel. Thanks for joining. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you very much. Cheers, Paul. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's moi, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.